to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 41 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast and I really hope that each conversation inspires you to think, feel and act in new ways. In this episode, I have the joy of chatting with psychotherapist and certified coach Alison Heilicker. Alison is a founder of the private practice Rethink the Couch. She focuses on helping adults transform their personal and professional relationships. Originally from the United States, Alison has spent 12 years working as a practicing psychotherapist and coach in Hong Kong and is currently launching her Rethink the Couch practice in Singapore as well as writing her first book. In this conversation, we discuss why our relationships have such a profound impact on our lives, how to set our relationships up for success, the importance of being able to articulate our needs, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Alison Heilicker. Alison, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much, Meg, for having me. It is such a pleasure to meet people that you really connect with instantly. The conversations that we've had via Zoom and through email, I feel really connected to your work and I hope that this conversation inspires people to think about their relationships in new ways and hopefully equips them with some skills to relate to people with a little bit more compassion, a little bit more empathy, and maybe a little bit more clarity. So I'd love to know from you, Alison, how did you get so curious about supporting people in their relationships in their everyday life and also their work life? Yeah. You know what, Meg? I think like most therapists, probably the the answer begins, you know, when I'm age three or four or five, right? Like if we really roll back the clock, I'm sure I was trying to keep the peace in my family and amongst many relationships early on. But for me, the real story actually begins at age 16. And the reason age 16 is significant in terms of me being able to support people's relationships is that this is the year that I moved from New York City to California, and I started working on a farm with a Japanese family. And basically, in this experience, I was interacting with people from around the world And what I realized in hearing people's stories and hearing about their professions is there are a whole host of ways to be of service to people in the world. But it became very, very clear to me that I knew that I ultimately wanted my life's work to be in supporting people with their challenges in the workplace, but more broadly, really their relationships in the world. And I knew even then through this experience, I wanted to do it in Asia. And believe it or not, you know, 300 years ago when I was interviewing for graduate school in New York City to train as a therapist, I remember the interviewer asking, what are you going to do with this degree? And I remember looking at him and said, what I want my life's work to be is to support people in Asia with their relationship and their work challenges. And I want them to transform And he looked at me with that look of, that's interesting, but probably a bit of a long shot. And so here I am, right, when you asked me that question in Singapore after 12 years working in Hong Kong, and I am still so deeply connected to my calling. And every client I work with, I feel even more connected to my work. 
what a gift to be so connected to your work and so connected to the people that you're working with where you feel really pulled to work with them. So Alison, when it comes to relationships, why are they so important? Relationships are important, Meg, because they affect really everything that we experience in the world. And what I mean by that is that there are medical reasons we should care about relationships. There are cognitive reasons, emotional, practical, and for some of us, even spiritual aspects about caring kind of about our relationships and how they affect us in this world. So medically, it's interesting. We keep learning more and more about how healthy relationships contribute to healthy immune systems. And unfortunately, the opposite is true in that people who are in unhealthy relationships actually see a decrease in their immune function. So medically, we're really starting to connect the dots in terms of how being part of healthy relationships can contribute to overall health and well-being. Now, cognitively, right? So when we talk about how relationships even affect our thoughts, when I meet a client and I get to know this client, right, through storytelling, through hearing about their challenges, about hearing about their place in the world, I can often predict by listening to their thought patterns and listening to the way they see the world, what their early relationships were like in their life for them right? How these early relationships contribute to their worldviews, their views of themselves and their views of others. And I can also with, you know, pretty high prediction, guess where they are currently in relationships and how through their thought patterns, they shape the reality of their relationships. So in other words, there's like a bi-directional relationship between the relationship and the thought pattern, but we know that there's a strong impact that early relationships do have on the way that we see the world. Now, emotionally, you know, we know that people who have strong, healthy relationships emotionally walk around in this, you know, very wacky but wonderful world feeling more connected, more confident, more secure, and more anchored, right? And I'm just thinking even now about, you know, the pandemic, right? And even before the pandemic about how people, And countries started to catch on to how feeling lonely can really kill people, right? And this is like a kind of soul death for some, but it's actually a literal death for others. And even thinking about, you know, a country out here in Asia, like Japan, that's actually created a position for the minister of of loneliness. And so this tells us actually emotionally how much relationships or lack of relationships can impact people and impact them on a societal level. Now, practically, people who have strong, healthy relationships, because they feel more anchored, they're able to get things done in a way that's more efficient and more clear than people who don't, right? They really feel like they don't have to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. And lastly, like spiritually, if we think about how relationships impact us, you know, there's a lot to say, you know, on that, that particular idea. And, you know, for some of us, some people walk around and, and they feel no kind of spiritual connection to the people they're in a relationship with. But for others, it's actually a really important aspect that it allows them not just feel not just to feel kind of that they belong or have a deep connection with people in this world, but really are anchored to something bigger than themselves 
or even just kind of the relationship, that they really feel like there's some purpose and that there's no coincidence that they're in these particular relationships. Well, it sounds like relationships have such an impact on us and in ways that are so obvious, but also ways that are quite subtle, thinking about our immunity, thinking about how we present in the world, and do we feel anchored? That's quite an interesting idea to think that our relationships can anchor us. Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting is even when you're not physically with the people you're in relationship with. And I saw this a lot with my clients throughout the pandemic who had family and friends around the world that they couldn't see, even feeling like there's that strong connection or that I matter to this person, this person matters to me, I care for him, he cares for me, that can go a long way in terms of people's mental well-being, but just feeling like wherever they are in their journeys, whatever country they're in, right? It's like a literal but also metaphorical being, that they belong to something bigger than themselves. Having that sense of belonging, isn't that a gift to humankind to feel like you have a sense of belonging, even if you can't physically see people? I think about a time when I was living in rural Australia on a farm and there was not many people around, but I felt like I was anchored by so much support out in the world. You know, my brother who lives in Montana or a sister that lives in Queensland, wherever people are, it does give you this sense of connection and anchoring, even if you don't see them every day. Absolutely. Yes. And and I think that, you, you know, what I see a lot is even when people don't have that kind of connection, right, when people do feel very lonely, that they still yearn for that. So it's either that I'm meeting people who have that and feel that sense of anchoring and belonging in the world or I'm meeting people who yearn for it. And I think very few, if any, humans on this planet would say that they yearn for no connection and no belonging. So considering relationships are so important, it's interesting to note that we have very limited education when it comes to relationships. I often think that when I used to go to bed at night as a student or even as a teacher and now as a parent, I'm not worried about the content of the day. It's the relationships that we worry about. And we have so little skill in this area. So how can we become more skilled in our relationships? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know what, Meg, I'm with you, right? So if my own children learn a few skills in school, that's wonderful. But the thing that I want them to learn the most is really how to be relational in this world, right? And how to form that connection and really the power of the connection. So if we think about, right, like none of us really get the education that we really need in relationships until often later in life, right? And something happens. So I think if we speak kind of generally about like good housekeeping with really improving the quality of relationships and just having general skills, The first thing I would say to people is think about having less assumptions, but more curiosity. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of us are busy and a lot of us look for really efficient ways to go about our days, right? So we might be texting people in relationships or having a quick phone call or a quick email. And so because of that, a lot more assumptions are made, but a lot of us don't actually pause for the curiosity, 
to really ask people how they're doing, to be able to really show signs that we care about them and that we're not just kind of going for the efficiency with making these assumptions, but we really, really are dedicated to getting to know people on a deeper level. The other thing I would say is for people to really think about, you know, when they're in a relationship, regardless of what relationship it is, to really look at working as a team. So a lot of people, when I see them in relationships, they work very hard to embolden their own positions, right? Or whatever their opinion is or whatever their worldview is, as opposed to, again, being more curious, finding out what the meaning is of something, you know, of something is for someone in terms of their opinion or what their need might be, and to try to work as a team to really build bridges in conversations and not walls. The other thing is for people to start to think about kind of how power shows up in relationships, right? And to figure out, you know, if power is out of balance in the relationship, why is this? Now, there are some relationships that necessitate kind of this power imbalance on some levels, but I think a lot of us, if we really kind of step back and looked at this imbalance of power and work to have more kind of equal relationships, that's where we can start to see ourselves more as part of that team. And it becomes easier to feel like the other person or other people are receptive to the teamwork, to really starting to understand each other and, again, being more curious and making less assumptions. When I think about, again, this kind of headline of, of being more curious with, with our, you know, relationships, you know, the people who are part of these relationships, I think another thing is to become more aware of how our choices affect people and to start to see like every choice is actually a big one, right? So how we communicate with someone sends a clear message, whether we really care, whether we're really empathetic, whether we're really pausing to kind of get to know this person or to try to care for this person. So I think, you know, again, we're all super busy and, and we're not going to all have time for, you know, long, deep conversations and, you know, different relationships have different depths to them. But I think if we can start to see how our tone affects, you know, our relationships, how our word choice, how our consistency around our communication, how all of that is sending really strong subconscious messages to the person with whom we're in the relationship. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking Meg, even like about the, the work that I do with couples. And, you know, I think about like on average, it's like six or seven years. I think the research, you know, consistently tells us before a couple actually goes and sees someone before they get support. And what I always tell the couples is to be aware of when an inflammation is occurring in the relationship before it actually turns into a disease. Because at the point at which it turns into a disease, that requires a lot more work to bring the relationship back into a healthy state. And I think this applies to all types of relationships, whether it's friendships, whether it's parent-child, to be really aware that every relationship will have that state where it's not in harmony, it's not in balance, and that's just the stuff of relationships, but you want to catch it really before it turns into some kind of poison in the relationship. Alison, you're raising so many incredible points and I can feel my head, a previous guest said when his head is spinning, it feels like popcorn. Like I feel like my head is just like all these popcorn thing. Yes. Imagine what it would be like in our relationships 
if we took 5% more notice? What's going on for my partner? What's going on for my colleagues? What's going on for my children? And moving away from that quick judgment, making meaning straight away and thinking, I know exactly what they're thinking when the reality is we have no idea what they're thinking. I often use the example of I used to teach this aerobics class every Tuesday night and there was this one lady who would stand in the back left-hand corner and her face was no emotion, looked like she was having the worst time and she used to keep coming back every Tuesday. She'd be standing there. I'm up there. There's 40 other people. Everybody else looks like they're having a great time. There's this one lady in the back corner looking like she's having the worst time And every time I used to look at her, I used to think, why are you here? It looks like you're punishing yourself and then it feels like you're punishing me. Like, why are you here? And then once randomly, I was walking down the corridor and she said, oh, Meg, I have to tell you, this is the best time of my week. (laughs) And I'm thinking, wow, I had this story that you weren't enjoying it. But for her, that was having a good time. And it's such a profound example that we have no idea often what is going on in people's minds and people's hearts, right? So people are conditioned to express their emotions, to express their thoughts differently, right? Based on culture, based on their family upbringing, based on their own temperament, right? Like how they come into this world right from the beginning. And it's amazing how many assumptions we make about that. And I'm even thinking, you know, make of like my own clients, right? And, and therapists, right? Are like making up stories left and right about why people might continue the therapy or terminate the therapy or why things go well or they don't go well. And I think, you know, if we really step back, we go, how about just a bit more curiosity, less assumptions about another person's experience, and we could probably stand to learn a lot, right? Like we're not mind readers, even those of us who work in professions where we're sitting with people all day long. And that is such a potent point that we are not mind readers And yet how often in our own minds are we thinking, I shouldn't have to ask, I shouldn't have to tell them. Yes. And, and, and might that become right, a form of entitlement that many of us have in our relationships. Like I shouldn't have to ask, or I've asked this a million times. So why do I need to ask it for the millionth and and one time? So I think that's where, you know, we have to step back and really check, not just the power imbalances that exist with another person or people, but even with ourselves, like what are the stories that we're telling ourselves about our own entitlement in relationships, right? That we're owed certain information or that our assumptions are correct or that our thoughts are correct, or we're just going to use our emotions to just sort of reason through what the other person might be experiencing when all along we could just ask and show genuine curiosity. Or we could just tell that this is what I want. So, for example, I think of friends when it comes to birthday gifts or if it's Mother's Day or gifts in the office and there's a tension of, oh, I don't want to tell them, but then I get really disappointed when they don't get me what I want. So how about you just articulate your needs and then they feel fabulous because they can meet your needs. They can't meet your needs if you're not willing to articulate it. Yes. And, and I, you know, I see this all the time with couples, you know, he or she didn't get me what I wanted for my birthday. Did you tell the person? No. Okay. Why, why would the person know? Well, you know, he or she just should just know. And, and it's amazing how there's that again, like potential almost entitlement that all of us feel at times that another person just through observation, just through years of maybe being together 
may know exactly what we want at any given moment. But most people, right, they have a lot going on in their minds. They have a lot going on in their own lives. And yes, we would hope that being in relationships, there's some attunement to what we may like. But I think the moment that we start to really make the assumption that this person at all times should know exactly what I need, exactly what I'm feeling, and this person should say exactly what I need to hear at this moment, that is often setting people up for a trap, right? And often kind of setting them up to fail. And I tell the people I work with just the opposite, set people up for success. And if you really set people up for success, and if you're going to make any assumption, assume the best, then you'll start to see changes in the relationship. What a skill to be able to articulate, set things up well and assume the best because naturally we don't assume the best. We make up all kinds of stories. Yeah. You know, I think the only relationships where some of us may, and again, you know, only at times do we ever do this with with assuming the best, is sometimes with our children you know, so even when they're a bit cranky or grumpy, or there's like a little bit of a meltdown going on, we might say, oh, you know, it's because she hasn't napped or had her snack or, you know, is upset because I took the yogurt cap off incorrectly. You know, that's the only time I think sometimes we cut people a bit of slack. But as time goes on, I think that slack gets less and less and less. And I think by the time we reach adulthood, it's like, you know, this person should absolutely, you know, be in the exact form that I want him or her to be in at any given point, as opposed to I'm meeting a human, having a human experience. And yeah, the person may have like woken up with indigestion or not slept well, or maybe got yelled at by his or her boss. Yes. Imagine what it would be like for our relationships if we could treat people as humans, having good days and bad days and not making up stories about them that then maybe inform our own stories and then how you spoke earlier, how we can get into these struggles of I'm right, you're wrong, and then it's more a me versus you instead of we. And we can see these dynamics in our relationships at home, our relationships at work, where it becomes the leadership versus classroom teachers or whatever the setup is is we can get into these struggles of I'm right, you're wrong. Oh, yes. And you know what? For most of us, it feels so good in the moment to do that, right? Just stay where you are, emboldening the position, you know, prove that you're right, absolutely bring in all the evidence that you can, right? But what happens is if you think about in the moment, right, maybe there's a little bit of an adrenaline spike and you feel good for five seconds, but long-term, right, even after the five seconds are over, what you quickly realize is, first of all, nobody likes in an interpersonal relationship for evidence to be, you know, brought to them or a case to be built against them, right? Like, we just don't like that as humans. And the right or wrong thing, you know, what I say to people is, where are you going with this? I mean, so what? So let's pretend you are right or this person's wrong. First of all, you're going to have to live with hearing about, you know, you being right or wrong for, for, you know, the entirety of your relationship, perhaps. But what do you do with that? So one of the things that I'll teach people, Meg, is when you start to get into it's you versus me, right? Because this is all variations of me and the other, right? Right and wrong. And there are like very sneaky layers to this, that once you start to get into that thinking, 
just imagine where that's going to lead you, because that is an exercise in building walls that has nothing to do with building bridges, that has nothing to do with building connection, that has nothing to do with being vulnerable. And so if you really want to start to invest in the relationship, you become more curious, you figure out how you're going to start to work about things as a team, and you absolutely get rid of this evidence or bringing any kind of case against any other human being, unless you're in a court of law, but that you leave to the lawyers. (laughs) So how can we do that? If we're in a habit of building up evidence to show that we're right and they're wrong, and if they just changed, this relationship would be okay. How can we move beyond that dynamic? Yeah. Well, you know, I work with people to transform their relationships. So I absolutely believe in the power of transformation, which means that I don't believe in just, you know, radical acceptance at all times and that relationships have nothing to do with change. It's all just about, you know, accepting the person in front of you. But whenever you get into sneaky variations of trying to control your partner, right, which is about the right or wrong thing. It is about building the evidence. What I try to remind people of is that that is actually just the opposite of what we need to do here in order to promote growth or transformation in the relationship. Why? Because that builds a bigger distance between you and this other person, which again, widens the power gap, right, which is not going to bring you closer, It's going to feel good again, maybe for five seconds, but beyond that, it's going to, again, just lead to more distance emotionally between the two of you. So rip up the scorecard, get rid of the evidence, no building cases, and really start to connect with the subjective truth of your experiences away from the objective towards the subjective. This is what I'm making up about you. That's like a very, you know, common thing that I will teach people to tell others, right? This is where my imagination is taking me. This is what I'm making up. And then you give the other person an opportunity to respond, whether that's true, as opposed to building a case. Because building a case is, again, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to prove it, and here's my evidence, right? So you have nothing to say about this because I've like, you know, I have this case that's like built of titanium versus, you know what, this is what I'm making up. This is where my imagination takes me. And I respect that you as a person may have boundaries and you may want to respond to what I'm saying to tell me if this is true or not. And then I teach people to be very, very clear with what their needs are and what their feelings are and to figure out how can we make this work for the both of us. And one of the things, you know, I'm I'm so honored on my own journey as a therapist is to work towards the certification in what's called relational life therapy, which is out, out of the United States, you know, headed by a very well-known therapist, Terry Real. And he teaches a lot about this, which is just to get rid of anything that smells of control and really focus on what promotes growth and transformation. And some of it we've talked about, right? Curiosity, um, making the other person feel psychologically safe, right? That I, that I really do care about you, that I don't judge you, that I don't have agenda. But then also taking it a step further and being clear, and this perfectly connects with what we just talked about, being perfectly clear with what it is that you want or need and how you work as a team, The other person's not a mind reader. So a lot of rope for that curiosity, Meg, and moving away from anything that smells objective 
control-like manipulation, any of that stuff. It's interesting that you bring up the idea of control, Alison, and I'm just thinking of some subtle examples that can go into our everyday life. It could be as simple as how the washing needs to be folded and there's a right way and a wrong way. It could be how a document needs to be formatted, that we have all these sneaky ways of trying to show that we're the superior being. You're absolutely right, Meg. And I, and I love how you can pick up these nuanced examples, right? That power and the question of who's in control in any relationship shows up in all of these ways, right? So even the belief that the laundry being folded in a particular way can be sending a message to a friend, a partner, whoever it might be who's on the other end of, I know the right way to do this, right? And if you only came up to the altar and you only did this in the correct way, then you know what? You'd be so recognizable to me, right? Because you would be just like me that that's when I would start to want to be more in this relationship. And, and when you peel back the control, what you often find is a pretty heavy dose of narcissism, right? Or self-obsession about the way things should be, or that I have the truth, right? And if you just did things my way, everything would be great. Mm, imagine if everyone just did things our way, we wouldn't have to have these conversations, we wouldn't have to deal with pesky arguments, it would just make sense. <laughs> that, that's right. And it's, you know, it's such a tragedy, but of course, the biggest delight that we're all born, even identical twins, right? We come into this world with our own projects we need to get done in this world, our own temperaments, our own ways of being, we have our own experiences and yeah, different cultures and, and different ways of seeing things. And you know what? There is no right or wrong. And if we can get to that space of there is no right or wrong, and I do things this way, they do things that way, and together the sum of the parts is so much greater than if we do it ourselves. Coming back to the laundry idea, if you want to do it your way, you get to do it your way all the time because some maybe this control strategy, is it sometimes driven by anxiety of feeling like it has to be a certain way so then I look like I'm on top of it and then I look a certain way to the external world? Yes, and you know what? You hit the nail on the head that control is often about um, so, so there's the aspect, right, of, of some people of having that kind of narcissistic belief about themselves, but there is often an aspect of anxiety. And it's often when people feel out of control in larger ways in their life that they'll seek to control these smaller things, right? Like folding the laundry or the way that the carrots are cut or the way that the dishes are dried, right? And so we need to kind of look at these things. And what I will teach people sometimes is really like, is this in the bucket of something that really matters in your life, right? Like if your partner continues to fold the laundry the way that he does, does it really matter to you? Because if it does, I want us to have a healthy conversation about it. But if this is an extension of that control or the anxiety, then the conversation is different. It's not about your partner actually folding the laundry differently. And you know what, Meg, it all seems to come back to laundry, right? I mean, there's something just so profound about that, <laughs> that metaphor. It's just ripe with, uh, yeah, so much in relationships. And bringing back to that point of often our arguments are not about the laundry. They're not about the topic. It might be the underlying feel of, 
Um, are you appreciating me? Do you see how good I am? Or I need you to value me? Like all these underlying things that maybe we can't capture to articulate. And this is where couples therapy and being in therapy might be a wonderful space to start to catch things that we can't catch if we're in these dynamics. Yes, absolutely. And and often what people will do is they will really avoid the real conversations and put that onto something like the laundry, right? Now, some people, you know, it's almost like they want to get into a bar fight and prove that it really is about the laundry. But I think most people, when you really get into it, it's about, right, feeling out of control or feeling like they're not seen or wanting to talk about intimacy or not feeling emotionally connected. But a lot of times, right, the challenges get projected onto all these different things. It could be our boss, right, becomes the demon. It could be the laundry. It could be all these other things. And that's where it is helpful, I think, sometimes to get that kind of support, right? So not like everything becomes deep and dark, right? Sometimes actually, you know, couples therapy or any kind of counseling can be somewhat superficial in terms of like just sticking with what's in front of us. But when we're talking about relationships and the stuff of connection, most of us deep down, what we really want is for people to see us, for us to feel like we matter in this world, and for people to actually validate that what I'm saying is reaching you and has some sense of meaning to it. And we can ask for that in such curious ways, can't we? Like through our behaviour, just hoping that we're going to get that sense of being seen and heard. And, yeah, coming back to the idea of we could be asking that through the laundry. And so I'm curious to know through your experience, when a couple is experiencing like that tension, they can feel the flare, they can feel the build-up, What are some signs where it would be worthwhile taking a moment, taking stock, maybe getting some support or thinking about things in different ways before things get to a part where you have to do lots of damage control? What are some signs are we looking for in our relationship that it's starting to get a little bit wobbly and maybe heading towards a bit of disconnection? Yeah, that's a good question because I think it is helpful for us all to think about kind of what are the warning signs, right? So again, every relationship is going to have these inflammatory moments or phases, right? And, 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 you know, relationships are challenging because life is challenging. So yeah, what are the signs really that things we may need to kind of push pause and uh, think about, you know, what to do about the inflammation or, or the challenge that's presenting itself. So one thing I would definitely, you know, look for is any signs that there's been, I think, a reduction or, or, or even a sense of elimination of respect, like just sensing that this other person doesn't quite respect me as much, or it doesn't even feel like he or she does respect me at all. Now, as I said earlier, I wouldn't just walk around with this assumption. I would definitely check it out. But once there's a sense that there's a lack of respect or reduction, that's when I would definitely yeah, see that as a potential warning sign. I sometimes refer to what I'm about to say is like the weapons of mass manipulation in relationship, which are denial, minimizing, and rationalization. So I would definitely be concerned if 
you know, you're presenting something in terms of a concern that you have, and it's just sort of being denied, you know, someone just putting up a wall, it didn't happen, you're just making this up, right? It's just, it's all has to do with you minimizing. So when you're in a relationship, and someone just starts to minimize your experiences, and also rationalizing, right? So when you start to present something to your partner, or someone you're in a relationship with, and the person is just sort of rationalize something that's really quite hurtful for you. The other thing, and this is something, you know, I'm always sort of, you know, thinking about with couples is when they are starting to become apathetic or numb. So sometimes I'll be with couples and they're fighting like cats and dogs. You know, I've been in, in rooms with couples where, you know, the secretary is calling and ask if I need security, right? So it can become incredibly heated, incredibly intense, But believe it or not, I usually have more faith in those couples, which doesn't mean I promote, you know, fighting like cats and dogs, but I usually have more faith in them, Meg, than I do with the couples in which one or both have checked out. So when I can smell the apathy or there's just that eerie sense of numbness in the room, that will tell me that the walls are so thick that they are probably both or one of them parked so deeply in resentment that is absolutely a sign that we need to do something. And, you know, I'm just even now, when you're asking me this question, I'm just thinking about two different couples, you know, I worked with. So one of them came in cool as cucumbers, super logical, right? They wanted to understand their issues. They wanted to just have a plan and then, you know, walk around with their, their tool bag. And they just felt like they could fix things that way. But the room and the conversations were entirely sterile, right? It was just diagnose us, give us a bag of tools, and we're good. And that couple actually ended up divorced because what happened is that they started doing this work in a very robotic, check-the-box way, but the subtext was, both of us want to get the hell out of this relationship. And I'm thinking about another couple who came in, and this was actually one of the couples where, where the secretary did call to ask if I needed security, and they were intense, they were fierce, they were, you know, going at it in this imaginary boxing ring. And of course, you know, I was able to take control of the session, and, and I often am, but I didn't allow it to continue. But this relationship has grown tremendously through the process of the couples therapy because they were both still in the ring with each other. There was passion and we needed to channel this passion right towards something productive and and really turn it into the gold that is the relationship. But that couple, they were both still awake. They were both feeling things. They both wanted to do things. And that came from a very, very deep place of, I want to connect. I don't know how. Both of us are acting like children and please, you know, help us out versus the other couple where it just, we were just not going to go anywhere. You know, they wanted the checklist. They wanted that peace of mind. They had done everything, but they were both out of the, out of the relationship. The other thing I would think about is in a relationship, you know, whether it's part of a couple or otherwise, is that if there has been some kind of betrayal that would be a time to really start to think about some support or making sure, again, you don't go into that sterile kind of numb space. And this is not just about when one person betrays another or one person transgresses against another, but it's even when you as an individual start to betray your own values, that to me would be a warning sign, right? When you're starting to betray things 
that are bottom line issues for you, deep values that you carry around in your heart, that would be a tip off for me that the personal relationship is going to need some support because there's probably some porous or non-existent boundaries. Oh gosh, you've given us so many ways to look at relationships. It's like you're giving us a whole new lens to just start to notice, am I pulling away? Are they pulling away? Are we in the ring? Do we want this? Are we fighting for this or are we not really interested anymore? So as a therapist, what do you witness when you start to see that connection and the growth and the regeneration of relationships? What are some moments where you look at them and think, oh yes, we're on the right track here? You know what? It's such an interesting question, right? When you just start to get a whiff of that transformation. And, and this is where I do feel so, so deeply connected to my work because it is so powerful to witness exactly what you just described, Meg. So first and foremost, the body language changes, right? The people send clear messages to each other that I'm right here in the room with you. Yeah. There's also a sense that the other person walking around in the world is really starting to carry the other person in his or her heart. Like I make decisions based on knowing that you're right here, right? So I'm not alone in the world, but I respect that I have a partner and I'm always looking through the lens of how might this affect the other person. So with that, I also witness a lot of empathy growing oh, yes, if this person has revealed to me that my biggest trigger is abandonment or is something else, that the partner starts to take that really seriously, right? And I think also just starting to open up and actually share some of the pain. So a lot of the defenses that come up, right, when people are going into the imaginary boxing ring or they're throwing out nasty comments, when that starts to shift away from really trying to hurt the other person towards, let me tell you what my pain really is about, right? I miss you. I really miss, you know, when we used to spend time together. I miss, you know, the sex we used to have together, all of that. When they really, really unpack the pain, that to me is a sign that things are starting to transform. What an incredible job to be able to witness relationships grow and transform. And I'm sure all the listeners have learned so much from this conversation to be in relationships. And it's not just our intimate relationships, it's everywhere, our relationships at work. How can we be more curious, move beyond our judgments? How can we think about what do they need, start to anticipate their needs a little bit more instead of just thinking about the me and what do I need? Thinking about the we. So to wrap this incredible conversation up, Alison, I'd love for you to complete four sentences. Are you up for that? Absolutely. Let's do it. I am inspired by? Transformation in others. I, I feel it's actually almost like a mystical gift when I get to witness that. When life feels hard? I have a deal with myself actually when life gets hard, which is that when it's hard, I help others. And for me, what I tend to do is double down on pro bono work or volunteering. So anything I can do to help others allows me to gain perspective, diffuse my own sense of narcissism, and really focus on doing. Because one of the things, Meg, that I will often tell people, and I know this myself, is that the mood is really what comes after the action. So if I focus on helping others, I, I often will notice there's a boost in my perspective and mood. That is so true. An underrated skill is? A sense of humor. 
So I think of, you know, I think about often when I meet people, right, like even where they are with a sense of humor, because that will often tell me about their prognosis. And I think about, you know, one of my favorite poets, he was a Lebanese poet, Cahil Gabron, in this beautiful poem that he wrote, Sand and Foam, and he said that a sense of humor is a sense of proportion. And so if I think about how humor can actually connect people, so long as it's not obviously weaponized, reduces stress hormone like cortisol and other stress hormones and increases our endorphins. I just think if more people can learn the amazing value of the sense of humor, we would be better off in our relationships with ourselves and also with others. And I am looking forward to... I'm looking forward to launching my private practice, Rethink the Couch, in Singapore, because Singapore, I've just moved here, and it is such an incredible place, and I feel is so ripe for the therapy being done differently. And I'm I'm just honored to be able to present that in such an amazing place. Oh, your clients are so fortunate to be in the hands of someone who deeply cares about others and their connection and can be with them on the journey. Thank you so much, Alison, for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing. Thank you so much, Meg. I hope this conversation has inspired you to set your relationship up for success. To learn more about Alison's incredible work in the world, you can visit her website, rethinkthecouch.com. Before you go, I invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember, what is your pearl? And number two, the action I am going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is... If you love the show, I invite you to write a short review on iTunes or Spotify. It will only take a few minutes and it really helps to share the podcast with more listeners. Thank you to Beck for writing the following review. The neuroscience tips and strategies Meg explores will not only help you build a relationship with your kids, but with yourself. I have a huge amount of positive regard for this educator and her guests. Thank you for sharing these insightful conversations. Thanks, Beck, for listening and taking the time to write a review. Your support means the world to me. To learn how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event or make an inquiry about my game-changing wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 41. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. 